0: Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I'm so excited about today's guest. Dr. Ariel Schwartz is a licensed clinical psychologist, author, consultant, and therapist trainer, providing psychotherapy, supervision, and consultation in resilience-informed therapy, which applies research on trauma recovery, EMDR therapy, somatic psychology, and a whole huge number of different treatment uh, models. Dr. Schwartz is the founder of the Center for Resilience-Informed Therapy, and just a delight to have you here, Ariel.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. I feel so honored to be here with you.
0: Oh, it's a, it's a mutual honor. So let's just start out, You know, I was telling you a little bit about my background and I'd love to hear you know, your path because it seems like particularly when you, when you find your way that uh, your past really defines your future in so many ways. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your your background, growing up, and how you ended up on this path.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm very happy to share uh, some about my background. So I grew up in a um, in a family where my parents separated. They they divorced when I was two. I'm just going to start right in with a, with a bit of just these really early influences on me, and when when that occurred. Um, you know when when something anything that that disrupts a sense of normalcy and safety and groundedness in our early lives it can create all of these ripple effects these repercussions right and i think i was always i came into the world a sensitive soul a sensitive person right And the combination of that and this early bifurcation within my family system really led to a uh, an internal fragmentation that then continued over time. So, you know, how this manifested is that um, there was some early um, violence between my parents that preceded their separation. And um, that preceded my mother's pregnancy with me. It, it persisted during that. It happened afterwards. So these really early um, kind of shock waves in the system. And then when uh, after the divorce, my father, who um, has narcissistic tendencies, married a woman who was much more uh, strongly in those tendencies. And so I had this one household that became very intellectually defended and sometimes very cruel. And then I had this other household where my mother is a clinical psychologist. My She marries a social worker and they Um, bring yoga into my early life. They bring, um, uh, you know, a lot of therapeutic awareness, a lot of holding for my emotional processing. And I went back and forth between these two households. And Right. Yeah. I love your response to that. Right. And so, As a child, we have to adapt to our environment to survive, especially young children, right? We need to know that we are accepted and welcome and understood. We require belonging to our families in order to feel a sense of self and a sense of identity and a sense of safety in the world. And so I was going back and forth from a very young age between these two households and basically found that I developed two different ways of being in the world. Thankfully, because one of these households had so much safety and emotional ground and embodiment, right? because I was doing yoga at the age of seven, Um, one of these experiences of myself felt like the real me. And the other experience of myself felt like a disconnected fragmented, dissociated. I developed all of these somatic symptoms that would exacerbate when I would go to my father's house. And then I would unwind from them when I would come back to my mom's house. But we're talking four days, three days, four days, three days. So this is a rapid alternation between different self-states. So by the time that I was a teenager, I couldn't sustain, I didn't know how to maintain a sense of self. And I think at that point, I really just checked out, I checked out for a while. And then thankfully, not too long, thankfully, in my early 20s, I started uh, to feel signals of depression and anxiety. And those kind of propelled me into taking self responsibility. So I entered into therapy. I engaged in a daily yoga practice starting in my early 20s. I actually did my yoga teacher training at the age of 23. And I began the study of somatic psychology that same year. So I went from an experience of my own personal dissociation and fragmentation into a process of trying to understand what brings me back home. And that's what brought me into somatic psychology and EMDR therapy and yoga therapy, to name a few.
0: Yeah, that's the thing that I think drew me the most to your work is it's an embodied, all of your work is very somatic. And I find that trying to heal the mind with the mind just doesn't work. So you have a new book out, you have several books, but the Post Traumatic Stress Guidebook, I want to talk about that today. And let's start by defining trauma and how it impacts not only the individual, but the collective ways of being in the world.
1: Yes. So, you know, in terms of a definition of trauma, from an individual perspective, our our basic understanding is that it's any experience in our life that's overwhelming our sensory capacity to make sense of that experience, to integrate it into a cohesive sense of self. And so those experiences get, Kind of quarantined off to use a borrow a word from our COVID times here. They get exiled, they get cut off. Um, you know, t- t- knowing your background with shamanism, I think there's a lot of parallels to what we think of as parts of soul that we lose, and that the process of recovery engages a certain amount of soul recovery, um, soul retrieval, that there's this element of reclaiming that sense of self. And as you said, we're not going to get there. the mind alone now the mind is a great tool but it's it's about finding the embodied experience in somatic experiencing we talk about trauma as thwarted instincts that whatever we naturally would have done in a safe enough environment to handle that sensory overload that that didn't get to happen. We didn't get to flee, we didn't get to fight. And as a result, sometimes we feel frozen or we feel collapsed and shut down in the body. So we need to go into those places where that's held in the body. We actually go back and touch into the discomfort and the pain of that as the route to reclaiming the wholeness of who we are. But because it's not an easy journey, right? (laughs) We have to find the right pacing of that. We have to turn toward that discomfort, that pain, that tension, that numbness, that constriction, slowly, mindfully, and within a kind of co-regulated or safe environment with another who can be present with us through that journey.
0: Yes, brilliant. I want to pick up on one of the first words you just said there, and that's capacity, because I have worked, of course, with a lot of people, dissociated or soul loss or loss of essence, however you want to call it. And a lot of people come to me and I'm so stressed. My sense of stress is that it's a word that doesn't really say anything. It's like, I'm sick. You know, do you have a cold or stage four cancer?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: For me, looking at stress with people and beyond that, but just stress itself, seems to be a lack of capacity to meet the conditions that are occurring in your life. And I see that as an interior issue that you can really, at some point, feel that contraction that happens and things like meditation and yoga, I love that you're a yoga teacher too, that open and allow you literally to have more inner space. And I'd love for, you know, because that's an area that you're very familiar with for you to talk about expansion and contraction of our basic capacity.
1: Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. And I I do in my work in the post-traumatic growth guidebook, I speak, I have a whole section in there about this contraction and expansion. So it's one of my favorite elements to touch into, but I want to kind of backtrack a little bit to this idea of capacity as an interior state and to really say that we learn capacity um, through relationships initially, right? That, that it's a, that we learn, you know, I'll, I'll use the word regulation, although I'm not a huge fan of that word, but and I'll tell you why. But I'll I'll borrow it because it helps make sense of something that we learn to develop that resilience or or emotion um, capacity, flexibility, regulation through the experience of relationship in our earliest um, caregiving experiences, how someone else holds us, attunes to us, empathizes with us, becomes our internal way that we turn towards those parts of ourselves. And when we don't have that, thankfully, the story doesn't have to end there. Right? That we have a whole lifetime of opportunity to redevelop a sense of understanding that there are people who are capable of that and that we can recognize those sources of strength and nourishment and we can begin to turn toward that. That part of what we have, I believe, intrinsically, instinctively, is not only a recognition of what is a threat but also a recognition of what is nourishing, right? If you think about the, the infant that turns toward instinctively towards a source of nourishment, we have that longing within us. And you know, so that the lack of capacity or a lack of resilience is not the, a failure on the part of the individual. It's a failure on the part of the, um, the environment. Yeah. the caregiving environment, the social environment, the collective, right? And so as we build that, it's it's a both and. We have our internal responsibility. We have our internal practices, breath work, yoga, um, meditation. And we have our reliance on external sources, our healthy reliance on external sources to build that capacity as well.
0: Yeah. Well since you're starting there let's let's talk a little bit about uh, attachment theory and how mm-hmm. from the base we actually evolve and how that relationship can be well the, one of the four types of attachment or you, I think you said three in your book I always think of it as four but one of them's kind of two parts but can talk about attachment theory and theory doesn't seem like the right word when we talk about attachment but mm-hmm. attachment as the difference between a healthy, nourishing environment and not so healthy, and the outcomes of that and how they project out into the future.
1: Lovely. You know, so when we talk about attachment, we're really talking about the first, you know, one to three years of life, right? It's our earliest experience. We can even go in utero with where this begins because our earliest experience of feeling held and safe and, and, um, connected to another person, all of us start in the womb. And then, you know, after we're born, we have experiences with another and, um, and others, right? We have you know, our primary caregivers, our mother, our father, um, and, or whomever else is our, our primary people. And we're very vulnerable in those stages of life. Our nervous system relies upon their care. Our bodies rely upon their care. And sometimes there's a tremendous failure at that stage of life, right? There's abuse, there's neglect, there's being born into a body that's already traumatized, right? Being, you know, being inside of the body of a mother who's living with trauma, as as you've shared with your own story. And I think that when we don't have that home base of safety, Right. That that um... Is already in training us into a certain way of being. I'm going to tie in this question about contraction and expansion, right? That we actually are contracting even in utero, even in early, um, you know, infancy experiences that we're feeling the experience of the world isn't safe, and the body will go towards contraction in preparation for self-defense, in preparation to, you know, in, in hopes to protect ourselves. Now, an infant has very little capacity to protect themselves from a source of threat, especially when that's coming from an adult, right? Be, um, and so at some point, the likelihood in those early attachment phases that it's going to overwhelm that Um, resilience system, that capacity to adapt and respond is much greater in those first few years of life. And so the likelihood of dissociation or collapse or a faint response in the body is greater To simplify this for a moment, as you're asking about the different types of attachment, that it's very much in relationship to, again, what's the other? What's the primary caregiver? Are they not available? Are we being neglected? In which case, we learn to become more self-reliant. We withdraw from connection. Um, We don't feel that we can rely upon the other or maybe the primary caregiver is intrusive and invasive and um, is not respectful of our space, at which point we can feel defended and um, embraced. Or maybe we have a very inconsistent other where we never know when that source of nourishment is coming. And as a result, we become very anxious and we are constantly seeking and looking for when is gonna be the next point of nourishment? When is someone gonna come and hold me? and i never know when that's coming you know if you think about an infant they cry and either nobody comes they cry someone consistently comes and i feel very secure that i know that i don't have to go into great distress to have my needs met or i cry and sometimes someone comes sometimes someone doesn't come or i cry and really scary things happen
0: yeah
1: yeah but those are our imprints beautiful
0: yeah, I, I came from an era where just let the child cry and they'll work it out. You know, that was that was the thinking at the time, Dr. Spock or whatever it was. And one of the things you said, I, I wanna clarify, oftentimes people wanna say, oh, well, it's my parents' fault that I'm this way, which really obfuscates the possibility of better development. Mm-hmm. And that early stage, um, first three, first seven, however many years in that thing, something that I learned from Gabor Mate uh, that is so obvious when you, when you see it is that it's not the trauma that is causing the issue. It's the story that we made up when the trauma happens. And so um, that gives some freedom to recognize, oh, well, I can change my narrative, my story, I can't change my parents or what happened to me, but I can see that at some point when I was venturing out into the world with some courage and came back and didn't get the soothing that I needed, the nurturing, the love that I needed, I'm not going to make my caregiver wrong at that Mm -hmm. point. I don't even have the capacity to say my father or my mother are, you know, Uh, doing things that are impacting me, we're only going to make it about ourselves, right? So I'm not, something's wrong, it's something's wrong with me, or I'm bad. And talk about that phenomena as part of this uh, healing process.
1: Yes, well, you you bring in actually several really beautiful points, one being that the young child, this is even pre-narrative, if we're going very young, it's a felt experience that again is very much centered on what what are you feeling, there's no difference between self and other, so that if something bad is happening, and it feels bad, I must be bad. And then as we continue to grow a a normal healthy child has qualities of magical thinking and that magical thinking is if i take responsibility for these bad things then maybe i can change it or if i make myself the bad one then maybe i don't really have to confront the fact that mommy and daddy are scary and bad so those are the early phases as you're speaking to this now, as we grow, what you brought in around self-responsibility is a massive turning point in healing. We can at some point take self-responsibility for our own health and our own wellness. We can, as I call it in the post-traumatic growth guidebook, enter onto the hero's or heroine's journey, which is really about that that responsibility to know the narrative that we are creating about our lives and be in charge of creating a healthier, um, broadened narrative that is inclusive of the hardships that we faced, but also is inclusive of the strengths that we've developed as a result of those hardships. Mm -hmm. One last piece on this is that the, um, you know, that when we are developing those that, that internal narrative, often what happens is that we tap into a very deep sense of compassion because the wounding that we experienced, perhaps as a result of our parents, was also a result of their wounding and perhaps even the wounding of their parents and how many generations back do we need to go to really understand ourselves in the, in the larger context. And at that point, I think it engenders a sense of compassion and forgiveness, deep understanding. Right? When I speak about the narcissism, for example, of my father and my stepmother and the way that that could become very cruel, the the understanding, and this ties right into what you shared about him being born in 1941 and the parenting style of that of that time. And the fact that he too was a cry it out baby and a, and a non-touched baby. And as a result really developed his own attachment disorder that impaired his ability to hold and attach to me in a consistent and loving way.
0: That's beautiful. Whew, so much in what you said. Um, I wanna talk, I wanna jump a little bit off because from, from what I can see working with people with trauma, that trauma initiates a sense of separation and that we live in a world of trauma, a sea of trauma in a world of separation. And there's a lot of things from the past that, you know, particularly the last three or 400 years that really the scientific uh, model, uh, mechanistic model has certainly reinforced that where it's it's in our institutions, it's in our economics, it's in our policies, this this deep sense of separation. And you're talking about connection as the, the healing really is that, so this ability for someone to, oh, there's so much in what you just said a minute ago, I, I, I wanna jump around here, but really to just talk about that the myth of separation and the impact. And I want to add one more piece to it anyway. And that it's not that something is broken or wrong. It's in fact that we have an incredibly intelligent nervous system that when it was too much, did that dissociation, that soul loss, that pushing that part down, but that's an intelligent thing. That's not a broke. That's not something broken that people are doing a lot of work because they think they're broken. And that's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you those two to weave.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's a lot to weave together. The, um, I think the starting with that latter piece, you know, that, that connecting into our internal wholeness, it's, probably what drew me most strongly to the yogic path because it's one of those ways that we can sense and feel a relationship to the wholeness within and the deep intelligence as you say of our own nervous system and Um, and really the intelligence of our energetic system. I wanted to tie together a a little bit more around that expansion and contraction and the the early childhood. I think it'll bring us back around to your question again, which is that one of the the core rhythms that we see in a newborn child is the rhythm that moves us between connection and actually self-referencing. And so if you watch in, um, in interaction between an infant and a primary caregiver, I'll, I'll say mother here, but it can be mother or father, that the infant and the, the caregiver are going to go, oh, ah, ooh, ee, right? Like there's this burst of excitement. There's this expansive moment of connection. And at the peak of that, the infant will look away. It's a signal that says, whoa. I need to come back to self. I need to let that all come all the way through. I need to find out where I begin and end in space again. So we have these rhythms of connection and disconnection of expansion and coming back into midline. And those are, again, intrinsic to us. And that when they're mismatched, misattuned to, that we can spend our, you know, our part of our practice in life, our recovery is to reclaim that within the self, that we can begin to to honor our own rhythm of going out into the world, taking in sensory input, right? Taking in the world and then going in and being able to integrate and process and let that become a part of self. So, you know, as, as you explore where where this gets um you know, cut off or where these wounds come from, I think that part of the practice is to go in and get to know know thyself, right? You know, we think of the you know the, the, the words on the inscripted in Delphi, right? Like know thyself, know your rhythms, know your own body's signals of when you long for connection and when you need to go back in. Know your signals of when you're in a state of threat. And how do you come out of that? How do you restore and reclaim a sense of safety? And those are actually choices that we have, especially as we grow into adulthood, we have increasing amount of choice. We're no longer dependent upon unsafe caregivers. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So much in what you say. I think I want to what you were talking about there was the mirror neurons, of course, and and that whole ability to, but I, I, I wanna jump into, because you have the post-traumatic stress workbook, I wanna talk about PTSD, both post-traumatic stress and complex PTSD and the difference between the two and how, how they develop and then, yeah, and then, we'll talk about how to go from there.
1: (laughs) Yes, yeah. Um, So kind of simply put the difference between PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, and we can even back up from that and just say PTS, post-traumatic stress, right? Without the the pathologizing of it, But we have, you know, And in any event that's overwhelming and that we can't process at the time, so we have small T, we talk about it as, you know, small T trauma and big T trauma, big events that are very frightening. Complex PTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder is the result of ongoing stress that's out of our control, ongoing threats the degree of threat, the degree of danger is usually higher. So it's experiences of ongoing abuse, ongoing neglect, the accumulation of these in a way that it, that it informs your sense of self in a quality of learned helplessness. That nothing I do is going to make a difference in the outcome of our world, of my world. And that as a result of that, if we carry that sense of helplessness or hopelessness or despair into adulthood, we're living underneath this false, uh, this, false internalization or interpretation of the world of ourselves, that there's nothing we can do that's going to create a different outcome. Mm. And so healing, the one of the first steps is actually taking back a sense of recognition that now I have choices that give me much greater control over the outcome of my life. I have more capacity to respond effectively and kindly to my emotions. I have more capacity to build a a quality of empathy and and real listening and connection to others. And that changes the nature of my relationships. So we build that sense of efficacy. We talk about it as resource building. We can actually tap into what it feels like to be safe. And as a result, we have a whole different range of of behaviors available to us.
0: Yeah. I want to get back to resource building at some point, but Mm -hmm. let's look at, your uh, particular, uh, what you call, resilience-informed therapy. What, can you describe what that is and how it works based on what we've been laying the groundwork for here?
1: Yeah. Well, the reason why I call my work resilience informed is because um, early on in my training, we're talking in the late 1990s, early 2000s, I was training in to become a trauma-informed therapist. And that's the work that, you know, that's the frame of it. You're a trauma-informed therapist. And there's a lot of language about that out out there. But what I found in um, the intense work of trauma therapy is that the more that I was holding up the lens onto trauma. The more that I felt that that was all that I was seeing, and that when I,
0: I, I just want to interrupt there, yeah, um, because can't I, I feel that a lot of times it's re-traumatizing That's rather right. than creating the capacity?
1: That's exactly right. And so to back up and to take a strength-based approach, to borrow from Marty Seligman and, you know, and this, this positive psychology movement, which is beautiful, it's huge, to back up and to actually shift the lens to what are the inherent strengths, what are the positive um, capacities? What In what ways have we learned and grown even in the midst of difficulties? How did you survive that? And when we shift the lens to a resilience-informed model where we're looking at the um, the instinctual drive towards health that lives inside of each and every individual, it actually changed how I felt in my work. I didn't feel so drained, and I was h- previous to that was building up vicarious trauma in my own system and um, and burnout. And as soon as I shifted my lens, I started to feel energized, passionate, excited to go into work for the day. I could see six clients and do the trauma work and feel nourished myself. Right, so it was a complete paradigm shift.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my teacher often says, uh, life wants to live. Mm -hmm. And I love that. It's, you know, and when we look at resilience, we often neglect something that you mentioned much earlier is the ancestral gifts that we've been given, that we don't recognize we sometimes blame oh this is because my great grandfather was this way or my grandfather or that and 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 there is a whole part of trauma that is ancestral collective trauma that we we do have in our lives but what we don't take into account often and this is why you know, for me, the mystical arts were so important because I I felt like I was an immaculate conception born on a bad planet, basically. Um, and this recognition that our ancestors went through plagues and wars and burning at the stake and pollution and, and uh, genocide and slavery and all of these things for thousands and thousands of years. And they survived. Life does want to live. They did survive. And we have that uh, in not only our genetic but our epigenetic capacity to meet the world. And I think that's a really important thing along with the positive resilient approach that the resilience is a gift that we have inherent.
1: Yes, yes. And sometimes when there is a lot of transgenerational trauma, we have to expand the lens broadly enough to see how, you know, to to look back in the lineage and to find sources of strength. I remember when I was looking at a study that came out of Emory University here in the States that was about... um, resilience in children and um, understanding their transgenerational legacy. And what this study showed is that children that knew more about their family's history and the hardships that their families had faced, but also how the family ancestors had overcome those hardships, those children were more resilient. And what they described is that these children internalize what they call an oscillating internal narrative. And this oscillating narrative says, this hard thing happened, and then we overcame it in this way. And then this other hard thing happened, and this is what we learned from it, and and so on and so forth. And that then they're more prepared for the inevitable hardships of their own lives. We all face them, but 90% of us are going to face at least one trauma in the course of our lifetime and the norm is that we face multiple traumas so when we know that those are inevitable but that something can be gained as a result and I'm not a fan of saying bad things happen for a reason that is not the the approach that I'm taking to this this is about difficult things will happen but that you can do what you need to do to incorporate that to learn from it and that's where the growth comes it's not inherent to the to the difficult event. It's inherent to you and what you do around it.
0: Yeah, and a corollary, whatever that word is for to that. Corollary, yeah. Corollary to that is when we're adults and we're looking at, say, attachment issues from early on, that there's a point there very similar where there's an understanding, oh, I can see my parents divorced but they had a history too and they had these things and i i feel you know for, in my own personal healing that that was really important to be to hit that place where i i was no longer a victim of something because i could understand oh you know here my parents were you know bombed in pearl harbor you know that's a trauma <laughs> to be rained on by bombs mm-hmm. um And so I think that's really important to keep in mind and it does uh, give us a capacity. But I wanna also bring that into the idea of co-regulation and how that kind of relationship can um, allow us to, to regulate ourselves and learn how to regulate ourselves. And also, if you wanna take it beyond, collective, because I'm finding that collective groups now, for me, go so much faster than the individual work because of the co-regulation and mm-hmm. the coherence and alignment that happens in those kinds of things. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that area.
1: Yeah. You know, I am such a huge fan of group work. So I'll just start right there. Had that experience of, as you describe it, kind of knowing that you know, within the collective, there's a magic that happens where someone else will speak a part of their story or what's happening for them in the moment. And then the way that that ripples out and resonates within you and that you then name what's true for you, and that's going to ripple out and, and facilitate healing for someone else. And so those group environments where where we have an opportunity to be present and go deep and really be with process, they're, they're so powerful. I know that for myself, some of my deepest healing has been a result of being a member of, of groups. And the um, I think that, the, that part of that is that because we need to feel a sense of belonging, and very often our core wounds are in some ways feeling exiled from the tribe, from the family, and in, in some way we've lost that sense of belonging. That groups give that, um, that opportunity to reclaim a sense of, ah, I, I have my people. I know what it feels like to be understood and welcomed back into the community. Yeah,
0: brilliant. So I worked, I don't know if you know this, I worked 30 years in the corporate world. I didn't know that. I used to say that I work with heads on sticks. They only have bodies to carry their head to the next meeting. Mm-hmm. And that brings up the idea of disembodiment. Most people are disembodied and have not a clue that they are. Working with Gabrielle Roth for 40 years, I, you know, I was disembodied very much. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: And... And they're also not able, most people are not able to distinguish clearly their emotions. We talk about it from the head of feeling, but actually an emotion is of the body. And so I'd like to hear your thoughts about cultivating both my interoception and my exteroception and why that's important to learn in the healing path and to help other people heal.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And f- you know for for those who are not sure what those terms mean, I'll just break it down for a moment that interoception is our sensory awareness of what's happening inside. It's the felt experience that lets us know if we're hungry, if we're thirsty, if we've feel tension, um, if we feel um, a sense of openness or expansion, and that all of those interoceptive shifts also give us information about our emotions because it's through those, you know, contraction in the throat or, or a heaviness in the chest or the butterflies in the stomach, that's how we know we're having a feeling. Right, and um, there's a wonderful neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio, who wrote the you know the book The Feeling of What Happens, and also Descartes' Error. Right, that that we need to reclaim that capacity in the brain through our sensory motor cortices and insula, that capacity to be able to know what we're feeling, and that somatic intelligence helps us with decision making and empathy and positive relational experiences and so on and so forth. The exteroception that you mentioned is our external senses. So if you have a history of trauma, building interoceptive awareness can be flooding. It can be overwhelming because all of the trauma memories are in there. So that's part of why we cut off. We don't want to feel that, or we learned early on that, that there was nobody that could handle us or that we couldn't handle our own feelings. So we cut that off. So when I work with someone that, struggles to know even how do I know if that I'm having a feeling, right? We have a term for it. We call it alexithymia, but it's basically, I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't even know that I'm having a feeling. This is where co-regulation is so key. Because we need to be reflected. We go back to that early attachment that we were speaking about earlier. The way that we learn that we're having a a feeling is because somebody else is reflecting us and responding to us. And then as we grow older and develop verbal capacities, they go, oh, it looks like you're angry right now. And then we have this reference point of what does anger feel like in my body? And there's a word for it, right? So this grows over time. And that we basically are reclaiming that through the dyadic experience in a therapeutic relationship or in a group. Yeah.
0: And of course, one of the symptoms of trauma is that we can't really distinguish the threat if there, you know, there's like, everything is a threat this is my mine is like some disaster is about to happen any moment mm-hmm. you know and, and and dealing with that or the opposite of what threat no threat or just you know doing crazy things mm. like this uh, invuner uh,
1: uh, this there, nothing can hurt me kind of thing that's right. It's, it's you know you're talking also about neuroception. Here's another term we can toss into the mix. Neuroception is the tracking um, that happens without consciousness of whether or not there's a th- there's threat or danger in our environment. We can bring consciousness to that neuroception by tracking the subtle signals, the increase in heart rate, the changes in how we're breathing that let us know that we're responding to threat. But here's the key: neuroception can be mismatched. In two directions. We might respond, as you said, as if everything's a threat in which we're kind of getting false positives, or we might have dimmed down our sensory capacity to attune to threat, respond to it, and as a result, we're under responders. And both can be dangerous, can't they?
0: Very dangerous. (laughs) Yeah.
1: The healing path, I want to
0: talk about some of the things in your book because we're getting close to our time, but there's just so much more I want to talk about. I come from the, um, I forgot what we even call them, the groups that we used to have in the 60s that were-
1: Encounter groups.
0: Encounter groups, of course, the (laughs) encounter groups. You know, we're going to shove the camel through the eye of the needle. And uh, I want to say a little to something about- people who are on the healing path, the idea of titration of just going leaning into, but not like trying to eat the whole elephant in one bite.
1: Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I, I um, you know, I'll, again, I'll kind of just simplify what are we talking about with titration? It's a chemical term, it's a chemistry term, right? You know, so if we think about combining an acid and a base like uh, vinegar and baking soda, you know, we all ha- know that experiment of making the volcano in your third grade science experiment, right? We don't want the big explosion because as you mentioned earlier, it can be re-traumatizing. So titration is just taking a little bit a little a few drops of the vine- vinegar letting it bubble up right as it mixes with the with the baking soda and settle down so we bring our attention to small amounts of activation related to a traumatic event and then we return our attention to orienting exteroceptively our five senses orienting to the fact that we're safe now so i can look around my space and i can connect to just looking at one cue that reminds me that I'm safe. And so then I can alternate back and forth between that little bit of the trauma activation and then let it settle down, let it integrate through my system.
0: Yeah. And of course, integration is a really important word. I don't think we've really talked about that, but let's actually, before we get into talking a little more about the book, talk about this idea of integration, these frozen parts of us that are taking energy, which in my language, I used to call soul loss or the dissociated parts. They're taking an enormous amount of energy first to freeze them, but then to keep them frozen in us. So how do we integrate with, that's a good intro into the book too. Uh, So let's talk about that integration.
1: Wonderful. So I'll I'll use a metaphor first, which is kind of what you were just describing about pushing these exiled parts of ourselves down and how much energy that takes. The metaphor that I often describe is like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. And initially, when we push it down, It's no big deal, right? But if you're trying to hold, and sometimes it's a really big beach ball, and you're trying to hold this underwater, your arms are going to get tired. And the more that we're trying to push this down, the more effort that it takes, because it's actually seeking to come to the surface. Without our pushing it down, it will try and emerge to the surface. So with a titrated model, we can allow this to come to the surface without blowing through and creating a big splash. We can let it come up slowly at a pace that we can tolerate. Another metaphor here for integration is um, a metaphor of weaving, right? So that if we think about all of the different um, life experiences that we've had and some of those threads or yarns are kind of outside of the weave of the entirety of the sense of self, but ultimately the more that we turn towards and take ownership of those experiences as they are, that we're building self-acceptance for who we are as we are. We're building self-compassion, that we can take those weaves, those somatic experiences, those emotions that we don't want to own, and we can own them back in. And the more that we do so, the more that the fabric of self actually becomes stronger, so much so that you might take this blanket of self and feel like it then holds you. Mm, Beautiful.
0: That's so beautiful. One of the things I just wanted to bring up, in fact, I have a deep dive meditation course coming up, so I'll just plug it. People can go to welloflight.com to find out more. But one of the things in teaching meditation people often say is, I was doing so well when I started, you know, I was so, I was feeling calm and peaceful. And then all of a sudden, all this stuff came up and I want to get back to where I was. Mm -hmm. And I say, no, you don't wanna get back to where you were. That was when you started, you created capacity Mm -hmm. and these things started to come up to be seen and loved and felt and embraced. And so people have a very strange idea of what meditation. And I think that's been part of the way it's been sold. What meditation is an integration process. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, the most important integration Process uh, individual in uh, anyway, so I had to say that, but then let's talk about you have like 60, I think, uh, different ways of healing in your trauma workbook. Maybe you can help us get some idea of things that we might be able to do, and maybe we'll go back and forth a little bit about it, yeah. but to tap into that innate intelligence, I call it the not original sin, original goodness, tap into the original goodness that we were born with. And I love your all the things in your workbook where you actually have a piece and then you try it and you work on it. And it's really, really beautifully done, Ariel.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate that feedback. So, you know, I have three different workbooks out there, and maybe I'll just distinguish what they are and who they're for. So the first book is the Complex PTSD Workbook, which is very much about and written for those individuals who have that complex accumulated trauma. And again, it is a modulated based on the triarchic model of trauma healing, which is a three phase, a triphasic model of building resources slowly, modulatedly, turning toward trauma material at a pace that you can tolerate, and then integrating that into your overall sense of self. There's the practical guide to complex PTSD recovery, um, which which is uh, accompanying that first workbook. And then there's the post-traumatic growth guidebook. And in that one, as you mentioned, there's 60 different practices that are aimed towards taking the experiences that we've had, working through the impact that that's had on us emotionally and um, and cognitively. And then being able to, again, piece by piece, turn toward that, turning towards shame, for example, building self-compassion, building capacity to to be um, to have stronger relationships to handle conflict. All of these pieces are addressed in there. And again, you know, I don't ever think of trauma recovery as linear. And so you might go through that book, you might get to one section, you might loop back to some resource development, you might do another piece of working through, you might have one layer to integrate before you go back and do another piece of deep work. So, you know, it's meant to be kind of followed in that nonlinear fashion that's honoring you and your own recovery.
0: Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. So talk about some of the specific things that practices that people can do um i you know i guess first thing i don't think you can i don't think there's anyone that doesn't have trauma because it's we live in a sea of trauma even just covid is is trauma so some practices to continue to be grounded to be self-aware to be other aware and to um you know, allow ourselves to be a healing force by stepping into our most authentic self really is part of it.
1: Very true. I'll share three quick practices in the short time that we have left here. The first is to work with your breath, to know that your breath is your most immediate access to creating a more capacious nervous system. And that when we are in a stress reaction, we're breathing more shallowly and in the upper chest. And I don't think this is new information, but we can all be reminded of it, that to be able to kind of work through the bands of holding at the diaphragm so that we can actually soften into that belly breathing and be with that longer, slower exhale as a way to create an immediate nervous system shift, one. Second, is the practice of containment, which I teach every single person I'm working with who's healing from trauma, because trauma leads us to feel like we don't have choice about when or whether to think about the events that were overwhelming for us. We feel flooded, we have invasive symptoms or flashbacks. And so we can consciously put that away with an agreement with our psyche of when we're going to bring this back out, open it up and attend to the wounds within a safe environment or a therapeutic environment or while we're journaling or in a group, but that we make a conscious agreement to only open up those files in a way that's going to be reparative rather than re-traumatizing.
0: Beautiful.
1: Third strategy, self-compassion to work through toward the building of capacity for self-compassion means that we have to confront the barriers to it. And that when we have a really fierce inner critic or a internalized self-loathing, that those are the pieces that are going to be your soul work that can ultimately help you develop the capacity of self to hold your own pain. And that's when we transition to really being able to be present with the pain of others, where our own, our own self-sabotaging parts don't interfere with that giving of your gifts to the world.
0: Yeah, Brilliant. Dr. Ariel Schwartz, I just am such a fan and I'm so grateful for you taking the time in your busy schedule. The newest book, the Post Traumatic Stress Guidebook is brilliant. I love it. And so are your other books. And uh, just thank you so much for all of our listeners for the amazing work you're doing in the world. It's really a blessing.
1: Yeah, thank you, and thank you for for everyone for everyone's work in the world. Right, we're we're all here doing this together, a collective healing journey. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Thanks.
0: We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers. In the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.